This is an ABC podcast. To sleep, a chance to dream. Or perhaps not if you're one of the one in five Australians with a major sleep disorder and the prospect of a good night's sleep is remote indeed. I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. Get yourself a soothing herbal tea and settle in for a fascinating talk on the neuroscience of sleep. From sleep deprivation, restless leg syndrome, lucid dreaming, sleep paralysis and all the other multitude of reasons 40 winks is often out of your grasp. The latest research offers clues as to why so many of us struggle to simply sleep. And even when we do, not all our brain sleeps too. Professor Guy Leshiner is an authority on the brain and the neuroscience of sleep. And he's our speaker in today's Big Ideas. I'm going to start this talk in a slightly unusual place in a, in a talk about sleep. And I'm going to talk about this man. This chap is called Phineas Gage. And he was a, uh, a worker on a construction gang in uh, New Hampshire in 1848 when he had a, an unfortunate mishap. So one of his responsibilities whilst creating a cutting for a railway line was to drill holes and tamp down explosives before blasting the hillside away. And unfortunately, on this fateful day, he was a little bit too vigorous in terms of his tamping down, and he must have ignited the explosive at the bottom of the hole um, as he pushed this tamping iron, this very heavy piece of, of iron, down into the hole. Unfortunately, the tamping iron, having ignited the explosive, then pierced through his jaw, and flew out of the top of his head. And after a brief seizure, with the tamping iron flying several yards through the air, he then sat up. And the first doctor on the scene gave this absolutely grotesque description, which I'm going to read to you in an abbreviated form. I first noticed the wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. Doctors love this kind of thing, so apologies. <laughs> the top of the head appeared somewhat like an inverted funnel as if some wedge-shaped body had passed from below upward. He was relating the manner in which he was injured. I did not believe his statement. He got up and vomited, and as he did so, the effort of vomiting pressed about half a teacup full of brain which fell upon the floor. Quite remarkable. Firstly, remarkable that he even survived and was talking immediately afterwards. In those days, in the era before antibiotics, even more remarkable that he went on to survive. And, and this is the nature of his injury. It passed under his cheekbone and, and basically destroyed an area of the brain called the left frontal lobe. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because Mr. Gage is one of the most famous examples of a concept in neurology, in clinical neurology, which is localization, demonstrating that far from being this sort of gelatin gelatinous mass that does everything, different parts of the brain, in fact, different parts of the nervous system, perform very distinct and discrete functions. And the reason why Mr. Gage is such a good illustration of that is because in many ways he was completely unchanged. He could walk, he could talk, he could do everything that he could do before. But what had previously been a God-fearing man, somebody who didn't smoke, didn't drink, uh, didn't swear, became this basically uh, a, um, a completely uncontrollable, whoring, drinking, gambling man who became extremely unpleasant. And if uh, you uh, believe some of the statements of his co-workers after this accident, he was completely transformed. Demonstrating, in his case, that the frontal lobe of the brain is really responsible for uh, maintaining our social control, our regulation, our rational thinking, our behavior, and really being a very, very good example of this concept of localization. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, I, what I'm going to try and show you in this lecture is that sleep is of the brain, so it's derived from the brain, it's by the brain, so regulated by the brain, and it's largely for the brain. Now, I'm not the person who first came up with that quote. This uh, relates to uh, a very famous uh, psychiatrist in the world of sleep medicine based in, in, in Harvard. But what I'm going to show you is that many of the sleep disorders that we see 
result from lesions of the brain. And by lesions, once again, I mean damage or injury or illness that is related to a particular part of the brain or the nervous system. Now, these lesions that we see in sleep disorders are not necessarily quite as striking as a big, heavy tamping iron. Sometimes they are transient. Sometimes they're functional, by which I mean they're related to changes in brain chemistry or changes in electrical activity within the brain, and sometimes they're microscopic, but they are lesions nonetheless, a little bit like that tamping iron. I'm also going to go on to show you what lesioning of sleep itself, so de destroying sleep or somehow impairing sleep, also does to the brain, because that gives us in some insights into what the function of sleep or the functions of sleep uh, really are. So we used to think of wake and sleep as being these entirely separate states. I've actually rather, in a prescient manner, I've put in a picture of the Berlin Wall, which seems to be coming back, separating the west of wake from the, the east of sleep. And historically, it's been put about that sleep is essentially a little death. But of course, we've known that that's not the case. It's not that everything switches off when we go to sleep. In fact, this is one of the earliest descriptions that really gives us an illustration of the knowledge that something goes on in sleep. This is something called the Egyptian Dream Book. It's a papyrus that resides within the British Library, dating back to about 1220, 1230 BC. And in it are descriptions of 108 dreams and their prophecies associated with them. So clearly, people were already at that stage interested in what the function of sleep or the function of dreaming was. It was actually Sigmund Freud who tried to apply some scientific rationale to the functions of, of sleep or, or, or dreaming. He may not have been entirely correct, but this in many ways was a, a landmark in the field of, of sleep research. Now, what we now know about sleep is that it's not simply wake and sleep, but actually that sleep comprises of multiple different stages. And, and this is largely thanks to work by this chap, Eugene Azarinsky who in the 1950s was undertaking a PhD, and as many PhDs go, it was rather unsuccessful. He kept on being sent away by his uh, supervisor, failing to do the tasks that he was set, until the supervisor, in a degree of exasperation, basically said, well, look, you know, I'm doing some studies on sleeping babies, go and record their sleep. And he went away and, and, and started recording the uh, muscle activity and the brain waves of, of babies. And what he showed was that throughout the night, the brain waves of these sleeping babies changed rather dramatically. So at the bottom of the um, slide, you'll see these rather large waves, these slow brain waves, that really are a, a function of the brain slowing down and represent what we now know as non-REM sleep. But interdispersed with this slowing of the brain activity, there were also these periods of time where the brain, and you can see right at the bottom there, there is a slight flattening, a slight increase in the frequency of those oscillations of the brain waves that are a feature of what we now term REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep that we most associate with dreaming. And it's during this stage of sleep that the eyes move back and forth. The brain waves actually look rather similar to the brain waves of somebody who's awake. And whilst the brain appears to be awake, physically, we are completely paralysed. So something happens in REM sleep that makes all our muscles, all our skeletal muscles, paralysed. The only muscles that continue to have some activity are the diaphragm, which obviously is important from an evolutionary perspective, otherwise we would all stop breathing in our sleep, and the muscles that control our eye movements, hence the term rapid eye movement sleep. And what researchers subsequently demonstrated is that we continuously cycle through these various stages of sleep throughout the night. And that the average adult, you can see there in the top, uh, this is uh, something called a hypnogram, which is a graphical representation of an average adult's night's sleep. We tend to cycle through the different stages of sleep roughly once every 90 minutes. Uh, entering into REM sleep approximately an hour to an hour and a half after sleep onset, and then dipping in and out of REM sleep. With the majority of our very deep non-REM sleep, the, this is the stage at which the brain waves are the slowest and largest amplitude. In the first half of the night, and the majority of REM sleep, what we term dreaming sleep, somewhat incorrectly, because we do dream in other stages of sleep, in the latter half of the night. So we now have these three stages. We have wake, we have non-REM sleep, which is what we traditionally think of as sleep, where the brain is a little bit less active. And then we have REM sleep, where we're asleep, but the brain seems to be very active indeed. 
But it gets even more complicated than that because we have a series of sleep disorders that I think very much illustrate that not all is quite so straightforward. So I'm going to show you two videos of, of, of two individuals. It's important to stress that both of these individuals are in the deepest stages of sleep. They're in what we term stage three sleep. The brain waves in this chap are very, very slow. He clearly is on the basis of the, the brain waves that we're recording in, in the deepest stages of sleep. But to all intents and purposes, he looks awake. He's moving around. He's interacting with the wires that are attached to his head. He's interacting with the bed. I mean, he's clearly not behaving entirely normally. It's a bit of an odd thing to be doing in the middle of the night. But he is in very deep sleep. This next is of a, of a young child who is also in very deep sleep, believe it or not. But his brain waves once again show that he's in very deep sleep. So how do we explain this? How can we explain the fact that people in very deep sleep can ex exhibit these kinds of behaviours? Well, what these represent are a range of conditions called non-REM parasomnias. These are a spectrum of behaviours that arise from very deep sleep, as I've already said. And they can range dramatically. They include sleep talking, uh, confusional arousal. So that's the, the first video that we saw where that chap sat up and started looking around with his eyes open. Sleep terrors, which is what we saw in that young child. People can sometimes sleep eat, so they can get up in the middle of the night, they can cook, they can often eat things that are completely inappropriate, like um, the, the things that come to mind are raw food or bird seed or sometimes things that they shouldn't be eating at all that are highly toxic. Sexual behaviours in sleep, a condition called sexomnias, and of course sleep walking. Occasionally even very complex behaviours like sleep driving or sleep motorbiking. I've had patients who have rewired electrical gadgets in the middle of the night without any memory. So, so these are, can be very, very complex behaviours. They typically arise in the first half of the night because that's when we do the majority of our very deep sleep. The eyes are typically open, there's complex speech, people often interact with their environment or with people in the room, not in an entirely appropriate way. People often have no recollection at all over these events. They're difficult to wake, um, and, but although occasionally they will have some fragments of memory that something is happening that is appropriate to what they were doing. So, well, how do we explain these kinds of events? Well, in, in a rather remarkable study from 2000, some researchers in Switzerland managed to get a sleepwalker into a type of scanner called a SPECT scanner. So what this scanner involves is giving somebody an injection of a radioisotope-labelled uh, tracer. And whilst they're having one of these events, this tracer doesn't last for very long, only a few seconds. And they somehow managed to get this chap into the scanner and give him the injection within a few seconds of the event starting. And what they demonstrated was rather remarkable, that when you look at this tracer, which is really a measure of brain activity, of metabolic activity of the brain, what they demonstrated was that they showed increased activity in an area of the brain called the cerebellum, which is uh, fundamental to movement, and in a very deep part of the brain, which is, which is called the, the, the cingulate cortex, which is a part of the brain that's responsible for emotions. So increased activity suggesting that there were certain parts of the brain that seemed to be more awake than they should be. What they also demonstrated was that other parts of the brain, so particularly the frontal lobes, and you'll remember the frontal lobes are responsible for rational thinking, for control, for planning, for executive function, seem to be asleep. So really suggesting that what is happening during these events is that parts of the brain appears to be more awake than it should be, and other parts of the brain maintain sleepiness, suggesting that actually sleep is not even a simple case of non-REM sleep or wake, but actually that different parts of the brain can exist in different stages of sleep and wake simultaneously. And indeed, further studies have been done. So what we will sometimes do in individuals with epilepsy, for example, that we are considering doing surgery on, we will implant electrodes deep into their brain in order to, to identify precisely where the epileptic seizure is arising in order to guide further surgery. 
And in some studies, in individuals who've had epilepsy and sleepwalking, what they've clearly demonstrated is that when you implant electrodes deep into the brain, you see something really similar. So the SPECT scanner told us about metabolic activity, about physical activity. The EEG with those electrodes tells us about electrical activity. And what they've clearly demonstrated on the basis of the EEG, the intracranial EEG, is that something very similar occurs in that you can see uh, on an electrical basis, different parts of the brain exist in different stages of, of sleep and wake. So what we now think is going on is in, during these non-REM parasomnias is that there are particular areas of the brain that in individuals who are predisposed to these kinds of conditions, and what you have to bear in mind is that these conditions are very common. About 20% of children will have sleep terrors or sleepwalking. You know, this does not necessarily demonstrate a pathological state. It can be considered part of normal brain development. About one to two percent of individuals continue to have these kinds of events into, into adulthood. But what we have, what we demonstrate is that whilst the areas of the, the brain that are responsible for consciousness, for awareness, for judgment, remain asleep, different parts of the brain, particularly those areas of the brain that are responsible for movement, that are responsible for reward and emotions, which is why sometimes these events have a very, very strong emotional component, and the parts of the brain that are responsible for memory, like the hippocampus, which is perhaps why these events are very poorly remembered, remain asleep. So sleep is not a universal brain state. That's the first thing that these kinds of events tell us. So rather than thinking about these three discrete brain states, actually what we should be thinking of is that there is a degree of overlap between these three brain states. And in fact, as I'm going to go on to show you, it's at these areas of overlap that many of the sleep disorders that we see, and indeed many of the normal phenomena that some of you may well have experienced in your lives, occur at these points where there is an overlap between the different brain states. So I use the term blurred lines because we've actually known that fairly complex organisms can exhibit these kinds of different brain states simultaneously, in that there are many animals, particularly aquatic mammals and certain species of birds and amphibians, that demonstrate a phenomenon called unihemispheric sleep. So they can sleep with one half of their brain while their other half of the brain is fully awake, which allows animals to swim and surface to breathe, particularly important for aquatic mammals, or to continue to fly whilst sleeping with one half of their brain. Now, unihemispheric sleep is well recognised in animals. It's never been recognised in, in human beings. But a recent paper has suggested that we do exhibit the ability to be able to regulate sleep in the different halves of our brains differentially. Because if you take an individual into a sleep lab, which we do about 10 times on every night of the week over at Guy's Hospital. People will invariably say, well, you know, I didn't sleep as I would at home because I'm covered in wires and I'm in a strange environment. And this is termed the first night effect. People generally don't sleep quite as well when they're in a new environment for the first time. But what this study demonstrated is that individuals who are brought into a sleep lab for two nights will differentially regulate the depth of their sleep in their dominant hemisphere. So on the first night, their very deep sleep, which will be much less deep in their dominant hemisphere than it would be on the second night, and it tends to normalise on the second night, suggesting that there are some mechanisms there that enable us to regulate the different halves of the brain in a different way, even in humans. And this may, of course, be an evolutionary hangover, although one can understand why that would be important because when you're in a strange environment there may be threats there and therefore there is an evolutionary imperative to be to retain some increased awareness over your environment on that first night so actually it goes even further than that because we now are beginning to understand that sleep is not only, not only is it not a universal brain state, but actually it can affect very, very small parts of the brain constantly, very small parts of the cerebral cortex. And in this remarkable study from about 10 years ago, what they did was they recorded directly from neuronal units in, in uh, rats. And what they demonstrated was that actually, even during full wakefulness, these little neuronal units, these clusters of nerve cells essentially, seem to exhibit silence every so often. And as the rats are 
tired, become more tired, as they're more sleep deprived, actually these little neuronal silences increase in duration and they increase in extent, really demonstrating that these rats appear to be awake and asleep at the same time. And in fact, some of you might already be starting to exhibit little <laughs> islands of, 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 of silence in your cerebral cortex. Um, and indeed, when you look at the EEGs, at the brain waves of humans, one start in, in detail, not necessarily in the way that we study in a clinical setting. What we see is we see some changes that occur locally in, in, in different parts of the brain of humans as they get more tired. And it may be that actually when we say, oh, I had a really bad night, I'm half asleep, it may not be that far away from the truth. You may not be half asleep, but you certainly could be a hundredth asleep. There are, are small islands of your cerebral cortex that are probably constantly dipping in and out of sleep, and that may well be a very good explanation for why our cognitive function, why our performance tends to worsen as we get tired, because those areas of silence increase. So this concept of local sleep is really starting to percolate through into a, a, a broad range of, of sleep research. So I talked a little bit about blurred lines. I'm going to give you another example of blurred lines. In fact, what I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you a really seminal piece of documentation of a neurological disorder. This really is a landmark study. Some of you may recognize this. This is Cinderella from 1950. And the king is dreaming. And he's acting out his dreams. He's imagining his, his grandson playing with him. And then he wakes up and tumbles out of bed. Dreaming again. Chasing Lucifer. Catch him this time. That's bad. So the reason why I refer to this as a, as a really seminal piece of medical documentation is this film came out in 1950, okay? It describes a condition that did not really enter into the diagnostic manuals until 1989. So really either Disney was a keen observer of nature or he was a great physician. I suspect the, the former rather than the latter. What, what this really exhibits is a condition called REM sleep behaviour disorder, which essentially is the acting out of the dreams of REM sleep. Now, you may remember that I said to you that in REM sleep, normally we're completely paralysed, that all our muscles are, are, are completely weakened. But in this condition, for reasons that I'll go into, that mechanism of paralysis that is a feature of REM sleep doesn't work properly. And so this is a condition that is often seen in, in slightly older individuals, although it can be seen in younger individuals. It usually occurs in the latter half of the night. You may recall that I, when I showed you that hypnogram, the majority of REM sleep occurs in the latter half of the night. And the way that it typically manifests is people lashing out, crying, swearing, or shouting. It's not always violent, but it often is. And those behaviours really represent the context, the narrative of the dreams that individuals are having at the, that are having at the time. The speech, unlike those non-REM parasomnias that I showed you, is usually unintelligible. It's often a few swear words that you hear, or shouting. Unlike the non-REM parasomnias, people don't tend to leave the bed. If they are woken, they will often have that dream recall that's appropriate to the actions that have been witnessed, as I've said. And these can occur every night, several times a night. Um, and can result in really quite significant injuries, injuries to oneself, but also injuries to the bed partner, and there have been well-documented cases of homicide related to this condition. So it is a real problem. So what we see in these individuals, so this is, this is a, without going into too much detail, the bottom traces are measures of muscle activity. And that muscle activity should be completely flat in REM sleep. And what you see in this individual is you see these really big spikes of muscle activity that shouldn't be there, really demonstrating that, 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 that the paralysis is not there during those stages of sleep. This is a non-cartoon version of a REM sleep behaviour disorder, just, so you, just to give you a flavour of, of what we see in the sleep lab. So you can see that, that chap lashes out against the bedside cabinet. Now, that bedside cabinet weighs about 50 kilos, so to, to almost topple it over requires really quite significant strength. And if you watch this chap's arms and legs, so he is dreaming at the time, he kicks out and then starts waving his arms and he remembers being on a beach and being attacked physically. 
So, so that's how these, these kinds of phenomena um, exhibit themselves. So we used to think of this as being a, what we term an idiopathic condition. The term idiopathic means we don't really know what causes it and it's not associated with anything. But actually what we've learned over the last few years is that particularly in older age groups, this can sometimes be a feature, a very early feature of a group of conditions that represent degeneration of the nervous system, in particular conditions like Parkinson's disease. And in fact, there have been documented cases of people having REM sleep behaviour disorder up to 35 years before they develop Parkinson's disease. And in this study, which was uh, by uh, one of my colleagues in Barcelona, they followed up a group of older individuals who presented with REM sleep behaviour disorder for 15 years. And what they demonstrated was after 15 years, 91% of those individuals began to exhibit frank features of conditions like Parkinson's disease or related disorders. So to consider it an idiopathic condition is perhaps not correct. We may want to consider it as part and parcel of uh, this group of conditions, at least for the majority of individuals. So why, why should this be the case? Well, we know that the areas of the brain that are responsible for generating muscle paralysis reside in this area of the brain called the brainstem. It's very far away from the parts of the brain that are responsible for the changes in movement that we see in Parkinson's disease, which are up here. So why should people with very early Parkinson's disease develop REM sleep behaviour disorder? Well, what we are now beginning to understand is that, that as well as having REM sleep behaviour disorder, one of the very early precursor features of Parkinson's disease is loss of sense of smell. Now, of course, nowadays we're all very familiar with loss of sense of smell, and, 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 and it's not particularly sensitive as a predictor of Parkinson's disease, particularly post-COVID. But when you look at the changes that occur within the nervous system, within conditions like Parkinson's disease, we see changes in the nervous system that are actually far beyond the basal ganglia, the area of the brain that we associate with, with Parkinson's disease. We see changes in the olfactory bulb, which is responsible for smell. We see changes in terms of looking down a microscope and seeing the, the, the histological changes, the cellular changes in the gut, which is why many people with Parkinson's disease complain of constipation for many years beforehand, and also in this part of the brain here, the brainstem, which is where those mechanisms of paralysis in REM sleep reside. So really giving us a very clear example of why these kinds of conditions may arise many years before the development of other features of Parkinson's disease. And in fact, we now know that if we look at people with REM sleep behaviour disorder in isolation, they exhibit lots of changes that suggest subtly that they may be exhibiting one of these neurological problems. So we see abnormalities in smell, in bladder function, in gut function, in the function of the heart. Um, if we do tissue biopsies of various, um, uh, various bits of the body, we see deposits of this protein called alpha-synuclein, which is the, the protein hallmark of Parkinson's disease and related conditions in the gut, in salivary glands, in various other bits of the body. And so we are perhaps incorrect to consider RBD as idiopathic. We're perhaps even not entirely correct to consider REM sleep behaviour disorder as being isolated, and that perhaps we should be considering this condition as part and parcel of the very early stages of some of these neurological disorders. Now, of course, that's very bad news if you are one of those individuals who exhibits this condition, but actually it's also a real opportunity, because at the moment there are ongoing trials looking at drugs that might modify the risk of developing Parkinson's disease, that might slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. And if this is a very strong mark of Parkinson's disease before you've got any of the other features, then you, you might be an ideal candidate for this kind of drug. And actually this gives us a huge opportunity to at least see whether or not some of these drugs may reduce the risk of developing these kinds of conditions. You're being escorted through the land of sleep and the part the brain plays in it by Professor Guy Leshiner. So I'm going to move on to another, um, another disorder now. So I'm just going to introduce you to one of my patients who was involved in a, a TV programme. There's two sides to it. The narcolepsy bit is, is I'm chronically tired and then cataplexy, it can manifest itself in me falling to the floor if I experience a strong emotion like laughing. It's any event 
that, uh, that I feel is, is funny. So it's an emotional uh, connection. The first event that ever happened was trying to put the children to bed. I fell to the floor and uh, wasn't able to get up. The kids were laughing, they thought I was just play acting. And I was um, and it just lying there. I could hear them and I could see them, but I was unable to speak or, or move. It was bizarre and just didn't know what it was. So narcolepsy is a neurological disorder that is characterised by a number of specific features. People are profoundly sleepy, often to the extent that they will fall asleep, sometimes even whilst doing relatively active things like playing football or uh, at work um, in fairly stimulated environments sometimes. And those sleep attacks are relatively brief. They're often associated with very vivid dreaming. Uh, people go into REM sleep very early on in those daytime naps. As a result of the REM sleep coming on inappropriately early, they often hallucinate, so that their dream mentation, their dream narrative, often enters into wakefulness. Another example of one of these blurred lines. So they will often hallucinate as they drift off to sleep or wake up, often seeing people in the room or having out-of-body experiences as if they're floating above themselves. They'll often experience sleep paralysis, which is almost the polar opposite of REM sleep behaviour disorder, that they will wake up and, and feel completely paralysed because the mechanism of paralysis that is a feature of REM sleep doesn't switch off. Now, these hallucinations and sleep paralysis are also normal phenomena. A lot of, especially the younger people in the crowd, will often uh, report experiencing sleep paralysis or, or, or hallucinations. It's often related to sleep restriction or chronic sleep deprivation. But in the context of these other features, it's highly suggestive of, of narcolepsy. And the final feature is cataplexy, which Phil exhibited very clearly there, which is the sudden loss of muscle strength, usually associated with strong emotion, which may represent that mechanism of paralysis being switched on inappropriately during the day. And I'll come on to, to uh, try and explain why that might be the case. So what do we know about the origins of narcolepsy? Well, until recently, not a lot. Th these scans are the scans of a patient with a condition called encephalitis lethargica. Some of you may well be familiar with this condition. This is a condition that essentially presented as an epidemic shortly after the First World War and resulted in features of conditions similar to Parkinson's disease but also profound sleepiness and some of the other features of narcolepsy. Um, we think now that this may well have been a response to uh, the Spanish flu, a post-infectious phenomenon, although its origins still remain a mystery. At that time, famous neurologists and psychiatrists said, well, look, actually, narcolepsy, there are features of narcolepsy that look a little bit similar to encephalitis lethargica, but when we look at the brains of people with narcolepsy, they look normal. But could this be a similar area of the brain, these very deep structures within the brain, that might be damaged in, in, in narcolepsy? The story didn't progress much until this dog and his friends came along to help. Skeeter is a small dog with a very big problem. No matter how much he struggles to stay awake, he can't. For this 11-pound toy poodle, almost every moment is a disturbing, losing battle with the urge to sleep. So why, why, why is this of, of, of relevance? Well, in the 1970s and 80s, Stanford University in California began a breeding program of dogs because there appeared to be a genetic form of narcolepsy in dogs. And after many, many years, what they identified was that in these dogs, there was a, a mutation in a particular gene, the function of which was not known. And at about the same time, a chemical within the brain called hypocretin or orexin was discovered. And so it was thought that these mutations prevented this chemical, this neurotransmitter, from functioning normally within the brains of individuals in narcolepsy. But when they looked in humans with narcolepsy, none of them had these mutations. There have now been one pair of very young children who have been identified who have mutations in this particular gene. But it really focused attention on this particular chemical, this particular neurotransmitter called hypocretin. And when one looks at the brains of individuals with narcolepsy, and you stain them for this neurotransmitter, what you see is that what should be, should light up a particular region of the brain, which is called the hypothalamus, in individuals with narcolepsy, all of those neurons producing this particular chemical have disappeared, they've vanished. And in fact, subsequently, it's been demonstrated that actually if you measure the spinal fluid of individuals with 
narcolepsy for this particular chemical. They often have very, very low levels or are completely deficient in this chemical. So why should this arise? Well, many of you will be increasingly familiar with the concept of B cells and T cells. So these are white cells that constitute the core of our immune response. And what we also now know is that in 99% of individuals with narcolepsy and cataplexy, they have a particular genetic marker for something called the HLA type, which is at the core of how our immune system functions. The HLA type defines the way that it, the immune system presents epitopes, presents bacterial or viral markers to the immune system to generate an immune response. So what we now think is happening is that individuals with this particular genetic marker that defines how their immune system works seem to be at very high risk of generating an immune response to a particular environmental trigger that looks very similar to hypocretin or orexin and that the immune system is actually attacking the brain and causing this damage. And in fact, what we have now clearly demonstrated is that the H1N1 swine flu, which was around in 2009, 2010, is one of those environmental triggers that seems to be particularly good at generating this kind of immune response. And in fact, both the, the flu itself and the vaccine for that flu, a vaccine called Pandemerix, has been very strongly associated with new cases of narcolepsy with cataplexy. So what does this substance do? Well, it has very wide projections, this, this system, that really is largely responsible for making wake stable, so it's a wake-promoting neurotransmitter, but it also stabilises non-REM sleep, so it prevents people from going into REM sleep. So what happens in individuals with, with, with narcolepsy, they're constantly flicking in and out of dreaming sleep, from wake, from deeper stages of sleep, but it's very fragmented. And so in these individuals, because they are flicking in and out of dreaming sleep, because those switches between wake and sleep and REM sleep and non-REM sleep are unstable and the whole of sleep is destabilised, that explains many of the phenomena that they experience. So they experience these hallucinations, they experience these, this sleep paralysis, they often experience very vivid dreams indeed, and they experience these sleep attacks. Well, what about cataplexy? Well, the honest answer is we don't know why these individuals get cataplexy, but we think that this may well be an evolutionary throwback in that there are many species that play dead when they're under threat. They exhibit something called tonic immobility. Possums, snakes, amphibians, birds. And some researchers have speculated that the reason why strong emotions and even things like laughter, which has its origins in a response to threat if one looks at primates, uh, may be triggering these vestigial pathways that mediate this process of losing muscle strength, of playing dead, and that somehow this loss of this chemical unveils or unmasks these evolutionary old circuits. But that's very speculative. Now, the other thing that people with narcolepsy experience a lot of is lucid dreaming. Some of you may well have lucid dreamed yourself. So this describes the phenomenon of dreaming, but being aware that you're dreaming, sometimes even being able to control your dreams which must be a magical thing if you can actually decide where you go and what you do in your dreams. This used to be thought of as being a bit of a figment of people's overactive imaginations. But actually, we now have some really quite amazing evidence that lucid dreaming is a real phenomenon. So in this study that was done in, in Germany a few years ago, they got a few people who said that they could lucid dream into a scanner. And they asked them to line the scanner, something called a functional MRI scanner, which tells us a little bit about the activity within the brain. And they asked them to clench their ha left hand for 10 seconds, then make a particular sequence of eye movements to signal that they were doing, that they were switching sides, and then clench their other side and do that repeatedly. And what they showed was that obviously when they clenched their right hand, this area of the brain, which is the hand area on the other side, because of course, our representation of our bodies is, is crossed, lit up, and when they switched over, the other side, the hand area on the other side, lit up. They then got them to get into the scanner, and while they were awake, to imagine that they were doing this rather than physically doing this. And once again, those same areas of the brain lit up. They then got these people to fall asleep in the scanner, 
to signal with this prearranged sequence of eye movements when they had begun to lucid dream, and in their dream to clench their hand, their left hand, then their right hand. And sure enough, once again, similar areas of the brain lit up, really demonstrating very clearly that lucid dreaming has an underlying neurobiological origin. You know, it was quite a remarkable study if you think about it. And in fact, when people have looked at lucid dreamers, what they've demonstrated is that there are areas of the brain that seem to be in slightly less consistent REM sleep than others. Areas of the, of, of the frontal lobes that seem to demonstrate some wakeful-type behaviour within lucid dreaming. Now, implying that perhaps these areas of the brain in the, in, the, in the frontal region might be important in awareness, in consciousness, although a very recent study has thrown some doubt onto these studies. Now, why is this relevant to insomnia? Well, many people with insomnia, many people who say, oh, I didn't sleep a wink, when you bring them into the sleep laboratory, actually what you record is seven or eight hours of fantastic sleep. And this is a, a, a phenomenon that used to be called sleep state misperception. It's now termed paradoxical insomnia. So individuals who complain of a very bad insomnia, but actually when, they are objective, when their sleep is objectively measured, they demonstrate very good quality sleep. But actually, rather than this being psychological, as was previously termed, what we now know is that individuals with paradoxical insomnia, with this sleep state misperception, also exhibit some changes on their EEG, on the electrical activity of their brain, demonstrating that different parts of the brain demonstrate some slightly more waking behaviour than the rest of the brain. So another example of these blurred lines. So what about lesioning of sleep itself? Well, there are a wide range of conditions that damage or, or lesion sleep. So chronic sleep deprivation is probably the commonest. But one of the very common conditions that we see in a clinical sleep setting is a condition called obstructive sleep apnea. So this is a condition whereby, uh, some, usually for anatomical reasons, the airway in sleep obstructs. Our airway is kept patent by multiple muscles that maintain the rigidity of the airway. And as we drift off to sleep, the airway becomes a bit more floppy and it begins to reverberate, which is why most of us snore. But if your airway is a little bit more narrowed or a little bit more floppy, then it can sometimes collapse in on itself and completely obstruct. And that disrupts sleep because your oxygen levels drop, your brain detects the fact that there is increased resistance to sleeping, your depth of sleep rises, and then the muscle strength returns and the airway becomes more patent. And in people with very bad sleep apnea, they can obstruct sometimes as often as 120 times an hour throughout the night. So you can imagine that this is very, very disruptive to sleep itself. And we now know that conditions like obstructive sleep apnea and some forms of insomnia, although not all forms of insomnia, are associated with a whole range of negative health consequences. Conditions like high blood pressure, conditions like heart disease, stroke, and importantly, cognitive decline, conditions like dementia. Now, why should that be the case? Well, if you look at the protein that is deposited in the brain in conditions like Alzheimer's, a protein called beta amyloid, and you measure beta amyloid in the spinal fluid of individuals, even after a single night of sleep deprivation, you see a fundamental alteration in terms of levels of beta amyloid in the spinal fluid. So you can see here, this is somebody who is left to sleep. Their beta amyloid is a little bit lower. And then they're left to sleep throughout the night. And in the morning, their beta amyloid levels drop down. In this individual, who clearly has been kept awake all night because they've had lumbar punctures all the way through spinal taps all the way through the night, what you see is you see a dramatic deviation in terms of their levels of beta amyloid in their spinal fluid. It's much higher than it would have been if they had been left to sleep. And in fact, when imaging studies have been done looking at markers of beta amyloid in the brain, even after a single night of sleep deprivation, levels of this protein, and once again I would stress that this protein is one of the fundamental culprits that are thought to underlie Alzheimer's disease, change within areas of the brain that are implicated in Alzheimer's disease, like the hippocampus, which is, which is fundamental to, to memory. So suggesting at least one explanation for why sleep disruption or sleep deprivation may be associated with these conditions. And in fact, why this may be the case has become apparent in recent years as well. When I was at medical school, we were taught that the 
lymphatic system, which is a, a, a drainage system that brings extracellular fluid back into the circulation, exists everywhere apart from the brain. But in the early 2010s, actually it was demonstrated that whilst there isn't a lymphatic system within the brain, there is a very, very similar system on a microscopic level. And they demonstrated that there are a series of channels, microscopic channels, that run through the brain whose function is actually to cleanse the brain of toxins or metabolites that have accrued over the course of the day. And that actually these channels open up by about 60% in deep sleep or under conditions of anaesthesia. And, and the, the, the degree to which, the speed at which beta amyloid and other associated products, byproducts of wakefulness, are cleansed from the brain is fundamentally altered by disruption of sleep. So giving us a very clear idea of why sleep disturbance might result in conditions like Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, in sleep apnea, it's a bit more complicated because in sleep apnea, essentially, you're being strangled up to 120 times an hour. So your oxygen levels are bouncing up and down. And so your brain not only is vulnerable to the effects of your sleep being disrupted, but it's also vulnerable to the effects of being starved of oxygen repeatedly throughout the night. And that may well generate some inflammatory changes within the brain. So sleep apnea in particular may be a very important modifiable risk factor for conditions like dementia, which in the current climate is, is gaining increasing attention. So I'm going to stop there. I hope that I've demonstrated to you that sleep is not a single brain state, that sleep is not even a global brain state, um, that when you look at the conditions that afflict us, or indeed some of the phenomena that afflict us, even if we don't have any particular health issues, then the, these give us some really important insights into the regulation and the functions of sleep. Um, and that these phenomena can very much be explained in terms of blurred lines. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. I'm going to take... Um, a few questions from the online audience and then a few questions in the hall. The most popular question we have online is, what can we do ourselves to manage apnea and combat drowsiness during the day? Um, well, specific, specifically to, to apnea, so uh, sleep apnea is uh, associated in, in some individuals with increased weight. So when we put on weight, first of all, it causes some changes in terms of the movement of our, of our chest, but it also... Um, fat is deposited in our neck and also in the muscles uh, of our neck. And so obesity is a very strong association with obstructive sleep apnea. That's not to say that if you are slim, you can't have sleep apnea, because if you have a specific anatomical abnormality, then you can. But certainly losing weight would significantly help sleep apnea. There are a number of different strategies that also help. So there is a treatment called APAP, which is a mask-like device that generates positive pressure and it stops the airway from collapsing down. And this is an extremely good treatment for sleep apnea and can transform lives, actually, when it comes to people who are really very severely afflicted by sleepiness. What happens to brain chemistry after long periods of wakefulness, um, building up so-called sleep debt? Yeah, so there are a number of different um, chemicals that regulate sleepiness. Um, so there are two processes that define how sleepy you are. There's something called the homeostatic mechanism, which is essentially a glorified way of saying the longer you've been awake, the more sleepy you are. Um, and we think that that is mediated by a chemical called adenosine, which is what, how caffeine works, because caffeine interacts with the, with the adenosine system. But there's also the, the circadian rhythm. So we all within us have a master clock in a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that defines when we want to go to sleep and when we want to wake up. And so when our homeostatic mechanism, so how long we've been awake for and our circadian rhythm are aligned, that's when we sleep at an appropriate time and wake up at an appropriate time and perhaps feel a bit drowsy after lunch because that's part of the circadian rhythm as well. But it's when those are misaligned, then, then sleep can really go awry. Thanks for the interesting talk. Um, I've got a question about the impact of exercise on sleep because usually I've, I've read many positive things but personally if I exercise in the evening I would um, after half an hour after falling asleep have the hallucinations you, you described so I guess in this kind of overlap time and I wonder if there's anything chemical happening or yeah so 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 there is evidence that aerobic exercise improves sleep 
it increases the proportion of deep sleep, of slow wave sleep, and perhaps improves the, the quality of sleep as well. Now, whether it disrupts your sleep if you exercise late in the evening is very much a personal thing, but by and large, what historically people have recommended is that you shouldn't really exercise within an hour or two of going off to sleep, because what exercise does, obviously, creates lots of chemicals, endorphins, but it also, things like adrenaline and noradrenaline, your heart rate goes up, your body temperature goes up, and uh, therefore that, all of that can be conducive to a, a poor sleep initiation. So if you are one of those individuals, then certainly exercising within the hour or two before bed is perhaps something that you might like to avoid. Uh, thank you, Professor. Um, here we are in electric light. Does the fact that we don't live by daylight and nighttime anymore affect our sleep generally and lead to more of the sleep disorders that you've been talking about? Yes, I mean, this is a rather controversial area. So, so historically it was said that if you expose yourself to environmental light at inappropriate times, then it can generate insomnia. Uh, it can generate difficulty sleeping because we know that if you expose yourself to very bright light, then that interferes with your circadian clock. It suppresses a chemical called melatonin, which is a chemical signal that part of your brain called the, your pineal gland pushes out, that is a, a signal to the rest of the brain to go to sleep. Actually, it's probably not the case that a quick burst of playing on your mobile phone necessarily does that on a night-by-night -night basis. But certainly, if you expose yourself regularly to bright light in the evenings, what that can do is it can shift your body clock back. It can cause something called a delayed sleep phase, where you start wanting to go to bed later and wake up later. And that's fine if you don't have to get up for work or school or anything else, because you go to bed later and you wake up later. But for most of us, we have to get up in order to get to school, to get to university, to get to work. And that can result in chronic sleep deprivation. How reversible is this sleep damage, as to speak? Um, is it permanent? Um, I, I think the answer to that is we don't know yet. It's a very short answer. Uh, you know, I think there are many areas of this that we don't fully understand. I think the relationship between sleep disruption or deprivation and conditions like Alzheimer's disease is, is just in its infancy in terms of our understanding of it. Because we also know uh, that, uh, for example, those circuits that regulate sleep probably degenerate quite early on in Alzheimer's disease. So some of the associations may be related, you know, in the same way that REM sleep behaviour disorder might be part of the prodrome of Parkinson's disease, sleep disruption may be part of the prodrome of Alzheimer's disease. And so, so these are all works in progress. And I think that we'll hopefully have those kind of answers in the next 10 to 20 years, but we don't have those answers now, I'm afraid. Um, thank you, Professor Leshner, for a really interesting lecture. Thank you very much. Guy Leshner, Professor of Neurology and Sleep Medicine at King's College London and a consultant neurologist within the Department of Neurology and Sleep Disorders Centre at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospitals. That talk on the neuroscience of sleep was given in March this year at Gresham College London. Professor Leshinger is author of The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep. And you can find full details about this and also the range of talks at Gresham College on the Big Ideas website. Just search ABC RN and Big Ideas on your web browser of choice. I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas, wishing you all sweet dreams. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.